0: Good evening, all. First Samuel twenty-eight. First Samuel twenty-eight. Glad you can make it out on a Wednesday evening here. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to pick it up in verse three of First Samuel twenty-eight. Do all of twenty-eight and twenty-nine, which puts us in really good shape to uh, finish up First Samuel next week. Now, we had a bit of a pause from what was going on. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, the Philistines are getting ready to go into battle Israel. And David, who is an Israelite, has now been with the Philistines. He's been doing it deceitfully, if you've been following with us here for these last couple weeks. And as they're getting ready to go battle Israel, David's going to now be put in this tough spot. This tough spot that he's actually going to fight his fellow brethren and countrymen, his own nation. Or what is he going to do? But we pause that in verse 2, because verse 3 changes subjects completely. It takes us back to what Saul is doing. Remember, Saul is the king of Israel at this time. He's completely fallen away from God. David is the next king to be. He's already been anointed king. But now what is God going to do with Saul? But before we get into that, verse 3 of 1 Samuel 28, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. Pause real quick right there, the death of Samuel. This is very important. It's mentioned twice in the Bible. Samuel was the last of the judges. If you guys remember your Bible, there Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That time of the judges there. It went on for hundreds of years where God would, would raise up uh, geographical people to go take care of problems. Samuel was the last of the judges there. Saul was the first of the monarchy. By Samuel dying, it has shown now that there's a passing of this. Now they're going to go into a monarchy. And Samuel also was the one that Saul used to communicate with the Lord. But yet, because of Saul's sin, that relationship had broken down and God had pulled his favor from Saul. But by Samuel dying, it's just reminding us that Saul had lost that connection, that person that he held on to, to have that connection with God. Real quick side note on that. I have seen so many times over the years, people lose their faith when they have a foundational person that they love pass away. And what happens is, what happens is, their walk with the Lord was based on another person and not based on the Lord. And so what was happening is they were going to church because grandma went to church. They were going to church because their spouse went to church or fill in the blank, what have you. And so what has happened is as they lost that person that was instrumental in their walk and relationship with the Lord, their faith began to falter. You've got to be careful of taking these people and putting them up on pedestals and saying that they are your rock, they are your anchor. No, your anchor is the Lord. and He is that and that alone. And what happens is when we lose that person then, All of a sudden, we have to stop and say, Lord, are you truly everything? And you is my life. I like what Oswald Chambers says about when you lose a loved one. He goes, our soul's personal history with God is often an account of the death of our heroes. Over and over again, God has to remove our friends to put himself in their place. And that is when we falter, fail, and become discouraged. Now, let me think about this personally. When that person died who represented for me all that God was, Did I give up on everything in life? Did I become ill or disheartened? That's what happens a lot. We've placed our faith in a person instead of the Lord. And when God takes that person, we start to falter, fail, and become discouraged. Just be careful about that. You're you're allowed to have mentors. You're allowed to have people that encourage in your walk with the Lord. But if you start elevating somebody, it's going to become a really major issue. Because there's only one foundation in your life, and that's the Lord. Saul was not able to move on here without Samuel, and that's what you're going to see tonight. Now, the uh, rest of verse 3, and Saul put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Foreshadowing there, because that's what's going to happen here. So now Saul has this decision to make, and what he's going to do is this. He's going to go to this, depending on your translation, this spiritualist, this medium, this witch. and He's going to try to talk to Samuel, who has died. Verse 4, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shum. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. They're drawing up their battle lines. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Verse 5 is very important. His eyes are on the enemy. His eyes are not on the Lord. And the result of that is going to be fear and trembling. Anytime we get our eyes on anything other than Christ, it's going to cause fear and trembling in our lives. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord. Verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Saul's crying out to God, but there's no answer. All communication Has been cut off between him and the Lord. That's why he's going to become desperate to go call Samuel up from the dead because he has lost everything. All these different ways that the Lord can can communicate, he has now lost. Dreams, Urim, the prophets. Let's break those down real quick. Dreams. I've run into many Christians over the years that put a lot of um, credit in dreams. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. The Lord can speak through dreams. That is an Old Testament concept. That is a New Testament concept. And I would never, ever deny that. And I do believe there's been times in my life where the Lord has used dreams to communicate things. But you have to remember the biblical balance of all verses. Ecclesiastes 5.3 says this. Too much activity gives you restless dreams. Not every dream is from the Lord. Sometimes the dream that you had is from the late night pizza. You have to remember that. You have to find that balance there. The Lord can speak through dreams. I do not want to hinder that, and I don't want anybody walking away from this message saying, oh, James is trying to throw a wet towel on that. No, the Lord can speak. But you have to find the balance verse as well of too much activity gives you restless dreams. Not every dream you have is something from the Lord trying to communicate to you, but he can speak through that. The next one there, the idea of the prophets. Well, why, isn't, why aren't the prophets speaking to, to Saul? Well, if you remember correctly, back in 1 Samuel 22, Saul killed 85 priests when you start killing the priests, when you start threatening the prophets, that communication line is going to dry up. Okay, now what about the Urim there? We don't know a lot about the Urim. We have to piece together, but it's some type of spiritual way of casting lots for decisions. That's not something we do today. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but from what we can piece together, maybe as a white stone and a black stone, and so what would happen is you would seek the Lord, and then the priest would come on your behalf and seek the Lord, stick the hand in the bag, and maybe pull out a stone, and white mint, yes, and black, mint, no, kind of like a magic eight ball sort of thing, and you would make your decisions that way. So they would call for the Urim to make that decision. Well, the Lord's not speaking through anything. He's killed the priests. He's threatened the prophets. The dreams aren't there. He doesn't have the priest even use the Urim in any way whatsoever. He's got nothing. And why does he have nothing? Because of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Nor is ear heavy that cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Unconfessed sin will kill your prayer life. It just absolutely will. Going even deeper, it says in the book of Peter that as husbands, if we mistreat our wives, our prayers go unanswered. So therefore, if I run into a guy and he's like, Well, I'm crying out to the Lord and I'm getting nothing, one of the first questions to ask is, How are you doing in your marriage? Because if you're mistreating your spouse, God says, yeah, I'm really not listening to you right now. Now, this does not mean you're losing your salvation. What it means is sin has caused a separation. For anybody here that's married, imagine going up and snapping at your spouse, yelling at your spouse, doing something awful to them, then coming back 30 seconds later saying, hey, would you make supper for me? It's not going to go over real well. The same thing happens spiritually. God says, I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to communicate, but this unconfessed sin must be dealt with first. So I just have to ask, I have to throw this out there. If you find yourself drying up spiritually, and one of the things you find drying up spiritually is your prayer life, and then you feel like you're asking and God's not answering. Now, there's lots of reasons why, so this is just one aspect of many, but you have to stop and say, Lord, is there something I'm doing that I have not confessed that needs to be taken care of? God communicates very clearly. He says, I want you to do step A. Well, if we skip step A and we want to go to B, C, and D, he'll say, no, 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 I'm not going to give you B, C, or D. You've got to do A first. And so therefore, if I'm disobedient in A, I can't expect B, C, and D to happen yet. Saul has cut off God by his sin, and therefore now there is no communication. So desperate times leads to desperate sin. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, That I may go to her and inquire of her, and his servant said to him, "In fact, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor." So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, "Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you." Then the woman said to him, "Look, you know what Saul has done; how he's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for me to cause my? Excuse me, lay a snare for my life to cause me to die?" And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, "As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing." Then the woman said. Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. He's lost the relationship with the Lord. He doesn't have the prophets. He doesn't have the priests. He doesn't have the dreams. So he's becoming absolutely desperate. I can't stress to you enough how big of a sin this is for Saul to do. In fact, in Chronicles, where it gives a little biography of Saul's life, it says this in 1 Chronicles 10. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed them and turned the kingdom over to David, the Son of Jesse. So in First Chronicles 10, it makes it very clear that part of the reason why Saul was judged by God is because he consulted a medium for guidance. Now we need to make a couple points here before we move on. When you have a leader that is full of hypocrisy, it's completely utterly dangerous. He cast away the mediums and the spiritualists, and now he's looking for one. The hypocrisy of that. He knows he's wrong. Verse 8, look at the detail. Disguised himself. Went out at night. When you have to disguise yourself, you know you're doing something wrong. When you're going in darkness, you know you're doing something wrong. Sin likes darkness. Hypocrisy likes darkness. As we said earlier, the hypocrisy of a leader is very dangerous. Look what he does in verse 10. He swears by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this. He's using God to get what he wants. He has no relationship with the Lord. He doesn't want a relationship with the Lord. Remember back to verse 5. He's only doing this because he's afraid and trembling greatly. But he has no problem dropping the word in the name of the Lord. I have met so many people over the years. And then they find out that I'm a Christian. And they find out that I'm a pastor. And that we may have resources to help. They become the most on fire believers you've ever seen because they will drop the name of the Lord to get whatever they want and to get whatever they need. Same thing that Saul is doing right here. He's using the name of the Lord to get this. Now, I have to pause real quick to remind us how far Saul has fallen. This desperate time led to desperate sin, it did not lead to repentance. And let me repeat to you again just the one point out of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 10. Because he consulted a medium for guidance. That's part of the reason why the judgment came upon him. So let's pause real quick. Let's talk about this for a second. The idea of mediums. The occult. Spiritualist. Things like that. This is an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. Can you go with me please to Deuteronomy 18. And amazingly enough, even in the 21st century, this is still a big deal. Deuteronomy 18. As you're going to Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 20, part of the law says this, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. God made it very clear. If you go to the mediums, if you go to the spiritist, he goes, I will cut you off from the people. And what an interesting word, to prostitute himself with them. It's really committing a form of spiritual adultery. You're supposed to have a relationship with God, Jehovah, the creator of the universe. And instead, you're giving yourself over to this falseness. So you're prostituting yourself. You're giving yourself to them to be used and to use them. And God says that's an unhealthy spiritual relationship, which is basically spiritual adultery. It's a prostitution. And so therefore, I'm cutting you off. To make it even clearer, Deuteronomy 18, starting verse 9 with me. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughters pass through the fire. Now That's an awful thing. What we can piece together is this, that they would have a statue that was made out of metal and you would warm up the statue. It had its hands out like this to the point of burning red fire hot. Then You'd place your baby on the arms. And the baby would be burned alive in front of you. And it was so horrific that the Bible says that they would have drums constantly playing. So that way you wouldn't hear the screams of the children. But the idea was that you were so willing to serve this God, you gave your child over to this God passing through the fire. It's an absolutely horrible thing. Or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer or one who interprets omens or sorcerer. There's a lot going on right there in verse 10 or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispose, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So Saul, a lot of times we pick on him for not being a great king. One of the good things he did is he did drive these people out, but obviously not completely because they could easily find one. But the law makes it abundantly clear. Now, this is not just an Old Testament concept. New Testament. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's going to be doctrines of demons going around in end times. It's going around now. We were just talking at a small group study recently how difficult it used to be to have false teaching. You know, I got saved in, in 93 and i took over out here at church you know years after that but before the internet really took off so if you wanted false teaching back then we used to get it sent to us in the mail they would send you these false books it was just and you would they show up hoping you would read it or they would send these letters and these letters generally speaking were like single space typed all full of verses out of context and that was the way you got your false teaching well, then all of a sudden the internet takes off and anybody with a camera can get online and post a video on YouTube and you can have a little false teaching following. It's really easy now to get the doctrine of demons out there. And it is absolutely crazy sometimes the videos that are sent to me and people say, what do you think? Or the teaching points that you hear and you stop and you say that it can only come from the pit of hell. But it's just so easy now to get that out there. So please note, one of the signs of the end is deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That's why 1 Peter five eight: be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The enemy is walking around like a roaring lion, looking for things to devour. Can you go with me to Ephesians 6, please? So if we accept the fact that there's going to be these uh, deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons and end times, and Satan is like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour, how are we supposed to handle this? Well, Ephesians 6 gives us the answer. starting in verse 10. New Testament repeatedly tells us that we have armor that we're supposed to put on. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Do you ever think about that, that you're supposed to have armor on? This is something I pray over every Saturday morning as I pray over the armor of God and I envision myself actually putting it on. You have the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemings of the devil. And remind you in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Please remember that. That co-worker you can't stand, you're really not taking them on. The neighbor, politics, just people in general, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not you versus them. Verse 12, it's principalities and powers against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There are too many Christians that do not realize that they're in a battle and they're walking around without any armor on and they think the enemy is the other political party. They think the enemy is that neighbor or that co worker or that boss. Or the mother-in-law or the father-in-law. They, they completely misunderstand. The enemy is the enemy. There's just one enemy. Anybody else just isn't saved yet. And so I'm supposed to put my armor on, verse 11, so I can fight the wiles and schemings of the devil. And I'm supposed to have my armor on, verse 13, because it's an evil day and I have to stand. But I may I please just remind you who the enemy truly is. When you understand who the enemy is, then you understand the importance of the armor that you're supposed to have on. And then Ephesians does this wonderful job, starting in verse 14, talking about all the different armor that you're supposed to have on, then covered in prayer. But the reason you have the armor is because there's the falseness all over. And it's really hard to sometimes tell what's false. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Even Satan disguises himself As an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment of their wicked deeds deserved. But look at that. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no, no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan can come in and he can look good and he can sound good. Over the 20 plus years I've been out here, there's been many times where the false teachers have tried to show up, and they look really good. They look really good. We had a guy one time that just kind of kept repeatedly popping out, and he wanted to, wanted to share on a Sunday morning, and I could just tell something wasn't just right. So you started talking to him, you you this this is not right. So you go, I went the polite route first, and just stopped and said, you know, I don't think that's going to click with our church. That's just not the way we're going to do things. he said, okay, so would you consider it? And he kind of kept contacting and contacting. And I finally had to say, listen, we're not interested. So I went from being polite to just firm. We're not interested. Then he started going around to the people in the church. And they would come to me and say, hey, I ran into this guy. And he sounded really good. And have you ever thought about having him come out? But the people that were always coming up to me saying, hey, he sounded really good. Just to be quite honest, I don't think had a lot of spiritual depth to be able to tell. So that's how he started coming in that way. Then he would just start showing up when I was out here working in the office. Once again, pushing stuff. And it finally reached a point where, if you remember correctly, there's this passage in the book of Revelation where it says that God has revealed certain thunderings and and noises, but it's not been revealed yet. But he did it, but it's not for us to know. Well, this guy came and said that God told him what it was, and if we would just come to his Bible study, he would reveal it. And at that point, we just had to get so firm where we said, listen, you're a false prophet. You're a false teacher. We don't want you in this church anymore. Listen, you got to take the gloves off when you deal with false teaching. It just reaches that point where you have to. There was another time I remember where there was a guy that came and started coming to prayer times, and he had some very unique ideas It was a little funky, and at the time you stop and you scratch your head a little bit, and you're like, okay, I don't know if I fully grasp this or understand this. It seemed a little funky, but nothing quite unbiblical, but just funky. Then all of a sudden, one time in the middle of one of these prayer times, where he started taking the lead more and more to speaking more, and finally one time he said just out of the blue, he goes, I don't read the Bible. I don't need to read the Bible, because the Lord just tells me. Okay, well, that's a pretty big red flag right there. But it starts so deceptive. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. No one has ever come in and said, Pastor, yes, hi, my name is Fred, and I am a false prophet, false teacher, and I'd really like some time on Sunday to spread some heresy. Would that be okay with you? It has not happened yet. It's always polite and nice and, and, and just going to bless the church. Had a guy one time call me from Atlanta that was an apostle, and God gave him Northwest Ohio. I don't know exactly what that means. It's like he's playing Monopoly. But God gave him Northwest Ohio. And he called our church first. Because he wanted, this is the church he wanted to start with. I don't think God gave you. So I asked him even. I said, have you looked up Hamler on a map? I mean, do you realize what you think you got? I think you think you got Park Place and you didn't. You know what I mean? We're, I'm not picking on Hamler, guys. I've been here almost a whole life. I'm just saying I don't think you understand the geographical area that you think that you're receiving here. Spurgeon said, how much is done for the devil in the name of God? You've got to be careful of false teaching. And may I please, 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 just because they sound good, just because they look good, just because they have a fancy intro on their videos, and just because they quote a lot of verses, it does not mean they're biblically sound. And the same thing goes for me. Anything I say, double check, triple check, make sure it's biblical, back it up. and If you don't agree with me, come up and talk to me about it and let's find out what the Bible says. This is why 1 Peter 5.8 says once again, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. We're supposed to watch out for him. First Corinthians 2.11, we're not ignorant of his devices. We're not supposed to be ignorant of this stuff. Now, here's the problem. This does not mean we look for Satan behind every tree. I know Christians like that. Everything is Satan. You come in, you flip the lights on, and the one bulb's out. Ah, Satan got in. No, I think the bulb went out. Let's just grab a ladder and change the bulb. I don't think it's anything deeper than that. But they look for Satan behind everything. I also know people that, if you mention the idea of Satan in any way whatsoever, they're like, okay, let's not talk about that. That makes me feel weird. Find the biblical balance, acknowledge his existence, acknowledge his methods, acknowledge his power. Also acknowledges limitations. How about you just start by understanding who he is? Satan. The word Satan means adversary. So right there, he's our adversary. The word devil means slanderer. He likes to attack with words and slander and lie. He's also known as Beelzebub, which means prince of the devils. He has authority as the prince of the devils. He's also known as Apollyon, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. He's known as the prince of this world. That's why this world is such a mess, because he's the prince of it. He's also known as the god of this world. Please note, little g. He's also referred to as the dragon, as a lion, as a lucifer, as the old serpent. And how about maybe the most significant of all? He's known as the evil one. That's who he is. But please also remember you don't walk in fear of a defeated foe, he's been defeated. I used this analogy a couple weeks ago when somebody contacted me and said how much they liked it. And I like to give credit where credit's due. I don't know where I first heard this analogy. Please remember, if you ever listen to any teaching, any pastor, and you think, oh, wow, that's new, that's amazing. There is no new analogies under the sun. People have been teaching for thousands of years. We're just borrowing things from other people. But I can't give you credit where I heard this one from. It's the dog analogy with the dog tied up. And I'll just repeat it again real quick. If you have a dog that's vicious but it's tied on a chain. It only can harm you if you go in its area. It cannot harm you past that. So if you know the chain only goes so far, the dog can growl at you, it can snarl at you, but it can't hurt you unless you go in its area. Don't go near the dog and you won't get bit. Don't go near Satan and you won't get bit. What does that mean? And tying it into our lesson here this morning. Stay away from the mediums. Stay away from the psychics. Stay away from the readings. Stay away from the horoscopes. Stay away from all that. Those all can be demonically influenced. Satan has a vast network of demons, angelic intellect, and he has thousands of years of watching human nature under his belt. So it sounds like he knows a lot, but he is a created being with limits. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful, and he is not all-presence all present. Those are attributes of God and God alone. Now I will just express an opinion here real quick, and if someone is, a, is bothered by that, I'm only expressing an opinion. I have learned for me, and let me stress, for me, stay away from the books that have themes with Satan and the occult. Stay away from movies with the occult and satanic themes. Stay away from the events and the holidays, the Day of the Dead, Halloween, that has those satanic occult and themes. There's no reason to go near the chained up dog. There's just no reason in any way whatsoever. And that's what I've just learned in my walk with the Lord. Stay away from that stuff. No fruit comes out of it in any way whatsoever. Back now, please, to First Samuel 28. That's the sin of going to the medium, and that's why it's such a big deal, and that's why it's specifically mentioned there about Saul and part of the judgment that comes upon him. But before we continue on and we get to um, verse uh, 11, any quick questions about anything here before we move on and make sure we're all on the same page with this. We good? Okay. So he says he wants to talk to Samuel. Verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Now when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is this form?" And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now there's debate about whether this was Samuel or not, actually. I think it's pretty clear that it was Samuel. It's referred to as Samuel. She's actually surprised that this actually worked. You know, most of the time when this stuff happens, there's a fakeness to it. This actually worked. Please note the description, verse 14. It's the idea of the mantle, the robe. What we can piece together in reading this is not that Saul... Saul, anything. She's the only one that did, but that mantle robe is a telltale sign for Saul to know that it's Samuel. If you remember correctly back to 1 Samuel 15, Saul grabbed Samuel's robe. So, and plus that Samuel is going to give prophecy here that actually happens. So the evidence is truly there to be able to say that this truly was Samuel that was coming back from the dead. Now, a couple points need to be made about this. First question that comes up so you can actually call up the dead? So this stuff actually works? No, this is God-ordained. This is, She didn't do this. This wasn't her power. That's why she's shocked beyond shocked. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. I'm willing to bet that most of what she's done has always been fake. Make it look good, make it sound good, and this time something actually happened. She didn't do anything. This was God-ordained. Same thing happened on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels where God allowed Moses and Elijah to make an appearance. So this is not an open door to say, okay, I really miss grandma. So I'm going to go to some psychic reading, some seance, because I want to be able to say goodbye to grandma one more time. Or I want to hear from grandma on the other side that she made it and that she's okay. No, that that stuff's completely, utterly unbiblical. That's messing with demonic things that we should not be messing with. So just because this quote-unquote worked, it only worked because God ordained it and allowed it to happen, not because the woman actually did anything in any way whatsoever. And I want to make sure that point comes across clearly. This is not biblical evidence to be able to say, okay, well, now I'm going to go tap into the other side. That stuff is, is fake and false and demonic. 15, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. If you break down verse 15, you'll see seven times Paul, excuse me, Saul uses a first-person pronoun of me or I. It's all about him. He is not caring about the glory of God. He's not caring about protecting Israel He's not concerned about being a king the way he's supposed to be. It's all about him. He's distressed, he's worked up, and it's all about me. Samuel's words to him, starting in verse 16, are completely straightforward. 16, Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Boy, we don't think about that, do we? That's a great question when it comes to if you want to get to some deep evangelism with people. Is God happy with you right now? We always just think God's in this jovial mood. Sometimes we're the enemy of God, and if you're not born again and saved, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're at war with the Lord because there's not peace made through Jesus Christ yet. 17, as the Lord has done for himself as he's spoken to me, he says, Saul, You know what's supposed to happen. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. That means in the grave. It doesn't necessarily mean in reward. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. This is straightforward. Saul, you know what's coming. You know why it's coming. You know what's going to happen here. And you must accept the consequences of your sin. 20. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he ate no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you have spoken to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. Very simply put, it's really bad to have the king die at your house. 23, but he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him, and he heeded their voice, and they rose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and then they rose and went away that night. Two points to make on this two points to make. One is a bit of a speculation and I don't want you to think that I'm adding to the Bible and one of them is just an interesting observation. Let's go with the observation first. When Saul started out to be king if you remember correctly back in 1 Samuel 9 he started out with a feast and started out with Samuel in the early morning. Here at the end of his life he has a feast of a last meal with Samuel but at night. I mean it's the complete opposite thing. He had all this hope at the beginning. It's early morning, and there's the feast, and there's Samuel anointing him. And here's now Samuel dead, saying, you're going to die, and here's your last meal, and it's just the end. Number two, and once again, this is a bit of speculation, she had a fatted calf already, if you note the wording right there. That's the equivalent to us of having a fridge full of food. If you always have a fatted calf around, that means you're always ready at any time to go kill something and to be able to feed meat to people. It's basically a luxury to have. So we can almost infer, maybe, possibly, and I don't want to speculate too much, this woman was doing pretty good with her little uh, seance business, okay? It's amazing how well people do when they start tapping into things they shouldn't be tapping into. So that ends that part with Saul. We actually pick it up back again in chapter 31, where the final battle where Saul will actually die. But now we have to rewind and catch ourselves up with David in chapter 29. And chapter 29 is actually a very quick chapter. If you're looking at the clock right now saying, well, if it took us that long to do one chapter, how are we going to get two? Don't worry about that. I got that covered. But anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here? I want to make sure we're all on the same page with what we covered in chapter 28 to make sure we are all good. Good? Okay. 29. Please remember what's going on with David. He has agreed to side with the Philistines. He has agreed to go to war against his own people, Israel. We finished that back in 28, 1 and 2. He has been made the bodyguard of the king of the Philistines. Verse 1, then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fount which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. So he's at the rear. It's a place of honor. It's the bodyguard. He's with the king. Then the princes of the Philistines said, Come on here. Hold on. That's David. What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, I want you to note in this quick chapter, three different times, Achish, the king of the Philistines, said, David's my guy. I trust David. Is this not David, the servants of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I found no fault in him since he defected to me. This king completely believes that David's with him. Now, we learned back in uh, 1 Samuel 27 that David was lying to him. David was going around and actually uh, attacking the different Philistine small cities and other places, leaving no one left alive, but coming back and saying, I'm actually attacking the Israelites, for But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him, so the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For what, could he, for what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Basically, would this not be the greatest thing for David to do, is in the middle of the battle turn on us? And go exactly with Saul and make peace with his master? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Akish, don't you remember the song? They sang songs about this guy. I I tell you, David has put himself in, in quite the position here. Quite the position. Is he gonna go fight his countrymen? He's gonna go fight his own tribe of Judah while using Goliath's sword? God, who gave the victory to David over the Philistines and the giant, was now going to go allow him to fight God's chosen people. And David is now going to be in a battle where Saul's going to die, so David is going to be accused of being the one that killed Saul, and God took, excuse me, David took the throne that way, and God didn't give it to David, but David took it actually. There's so much of a mess with this. But David commits himself. Verse 6, then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives. Now please know when he says the Lord lives, he doesn't really mean it. These false religions will just claim any God. That's just what they do. You have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. Remember, this guy is completely fooled. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord should not favor you. Therefore return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? There are some commentators that really want to make it sound like David knew what he was doing, and he was going to do this great twist at the end. and I don't think so. Look at his wording. The enemies of my Lord the King. I think David had got himself into such a spot here, that he was in such a pit, that he had to take the Lord stepping in to get him out of this. Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go with us to this battle. Three times Achish says, This is my guy. This is my guy, and I trust him completely. Ten. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up in the early morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is vitally important that really is, and just bear with me for a second, because I want you to see the context of this. God is taking David away from this battle. There can be no accusation against David that you were in the battle with the Philistines that killed Saul, and you did that on purpose so that way you could become king. God, in his grace and his mercy, slams the door shut, gets David out of here, because David was not making a wise decision on his own, and God had to step in and say, David, I'm grabbing you by the collar and I'm pulling you out. And thankfully he does, because that way when Saul dies in 1 Samuel 31, there can be nothing said that David did this or David had any hand in this in any way whatsoever. Have you ever looked back in your life and had a moment where you stopped and you realized that you were so lost, so blind... So full of just not following God that it took the Lord to grab you by the collar. And that was the only way you were going to get yourself out of something. I remember years ago, I was up very late at night one time, wide awake. And I had these great ideas that were affected by sleep, sin, and stupidity. That's the way I looked at it. So I was up at night, I should have been sleeping. And it just ended up being stupidity and sin. But it was a great idea. I mean, if you would have asked me at 3 o'clock in the morning, this was the best life-changing idea that I ever had. And if I could have put that idea into practice at 3 a.m., it would have changed the world. My marriage would have been better. The ministry would have been better. The church would have been better. It would have been great. At night, it sounded so good. Thank the Lord it was 3 o'clock in the morning and not 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Because God stopped it. God protected me, and I look back, and I, and I even to this day look back and think, what was I thinking? How did I convince myself at that moment that that was the world's greatest idea that was going to fix me and every problem that I've ever had? And the, to me, it is a 1 Samuel 29 moment of where I got myself so far into something where God said, James, yeah you're just not going to hear conviction. You're not going to hear the word of the Lord. You're not going to, I'm going to just grab you by the collar and pull you out of this. And when daylight comes and you have some sleep and you open up your eyes, you're going to look around and say, Lord, thank you. And I do. Lord, thank you. I'm just telling you right now, if you're in the middle of something and you're with the Philistines and you really shouldn't be there and God is really speaking to you on something and you're just not listening, oh, don't fight him. Allow him to grab you by the collar and just pull you out. That's sometimes the most loving, graceful thing that he can do is just grab us and pull us out of there. And that's what he did with David. That's what he protected him with. So we'll call it there for this evening because I don't want to get into chapter 30 because that's got a, a new topic that goes on but this sets, sets us up for real good shape here to finish up uh, for Samuel here hopefully next week. All right, uh, any final questions, comments, about anything here before we close up with a word of prayer? All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we just come to you now, we're thankful. Thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thankful for those times you grab us by the collar. Thank you for that, Lord, your your forceful grace. Um, Lord, I we also just look at these things here at the occult. Please speak to our hearts. If there's something we're allowing in that is a bad influence, may we, in the name of Jesus, repel that, push that out. May we not walk in fear of the defeated foe, but as your word says right here, let's not be ignorant of his devices. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom you give in your name. Amen couple quick announcements before we let you guys go. A uh, couple upcoming events. Uh, Sunday, August 28th, Back to School Bash. Mark your calendar for that. Coming up sooner than what we think. Please note a couple other things coming up here as well. We're planning a summer baptism. We're going to be over at uh, Bill and Shirley Jones' house. We used to have them over there. It's been a couple of years, so I'm glad to get back over there to do that. If you're interested in getting baptized, please see me. We're looking at doing that in August. So if you're interested in getting baptized, please come see me about this as well. Ministry opportunity for you to serve. Uh, Haley and Corbin Brosnick that attend out here at church. They are moving. They live in Napoleon now, and they're moving from one house into Napoleon to another house in Napoleon. They're going to be doing that Saturday at 10 a.m. Saturday at 10 a.m. So if you are willing and able to help with that, see Corbin. If you don't have Corbin's number, contact me and I can get you Corbin's number and you can get more of the details about that as well. Please also check the bulletin. We have small group studies throughout the week, three ladies' studies, three men's studies. We prayerfully encourage you to get involved with those. There's a neat fruit that comes out of that. So I think that's most everything. So you guys have a good week. God bless. Uh, Go walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we'll catch you guys next week. Take care.